Choking throughput is one way to manage the objective of keeping it in the ground. And so it is very difficult to um, go out and litigate every lease, every wellhead at the production level. And what we do in the U.S. is not going to change behavior in Canada. So how do you get at it? Well, the pipeline is certainly one way to do that. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we are excited to share a very timely discussion on pipeline issues in the United States. Whether it's Keystone XL, Dakota Access, or Line 5, oil and natural gas pipelines have been under increased scrutiny from federal and state governments, as well as environmental groups and other NGOs. What's changing? To help us make sense of this, we are joined by Christy Tizak. Christy is a managing director with Clearview Energy Partners, where she leads research on interstate pipelines, energy infrastructure, and U.S. environmental policy. Today with my colleague, Ben Cahill, Christy walks us through the Biden administration's approach to pipeline issues, recent court decisions impacting pipeline updates and replacements, and how federal agencies are responding to new pressures from states and from protesters. I'll turn it over to Ben now to host the discussion. Christy, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today to talk about pipeline issues. So to kick us off, I thought maybe we would start with the obvious question. So on his first day in office, President Biden issued an executive order that revoked a key permit for Keystone XL. And that pipeline had been a political lightning rod for 10 years. After many months, it was finally canceled in, in early June. And I'm just curious to get your views on whether or not Keystone XL was a special case or do you think that it's set the tone for this administration's approach to oil pipeline issues? Sure, absolutely. I think what's important to note, you know, to sort of set the lay of the land here is when we talk about oil, natural gas liquids and refined product pipelines, those are permitted differently than natural gas pipelines. Natural gas pipelines are permitted by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and that regulatory process actually regulates the entry and exit of pipelines into service, whereas in oil, gas, liquids, and products, they're regulated under the Interstate Commerce Act, which is entirely different, has contract carriage rates as opposed to regulated cost of service rates. So the pipelines we're talking about today are oil pipelines, and what makes them interesting and unique is that the permitting process for oil, gas, liquids, and products pipelines is that the states have the primary siting role in terms of where those pipelines go. And the federal process usually is limited to crossing federal water bodies and acquiring certain federal water permits. Or as in the case of Keystone XL, there was a lot of crossing of Bureau of Land Management administered lands by the Department of Interior and the Forest Service over at the Department of Agriculture. So, Thanks, Christy. So as you mentioned, there are a number of other pipeline issues that have been in the news in recent months. And at Queerview Energy, you do a great job of keeping track of them all. So I wanted to delve into a couple of these in particular. Some that spring to mind immediately are the, the Line 5 project, the Line 3 replacement project, and also the Dakota Access Pipeline, which has gotten a lot of media attention. So these are all unique cases, but they definitely share some, some common themes. And I thought maybe we could talk about each of them in turn. So maybe let's start with Line 5. Can you give a bit of background on Line 5, where the pipeline is, what function it serves, and, and also what the current status of the pipeline is? I think that helps set the stage a little bit when we talk about Line 5. 
Line five is indeed an interesting case. In the last half of 2018, the Michigan State Legislature passed a law that required Enbridge to take line five, which is a dual pipeline that carries light oil, propane, which is a natural gas liquid, and other natural gas liquid products and refined products across the Straits of Mackinac and into Michigan before going back through Wisconsin and back to Canada. And Line 5 was scheduled, or the legislature agreed, the Republican majority legislature agreed that the risks to the Straits of Mackinac from the continued operation of this pipeline, even though it had never had a spill, were sufficiently great that their preference was to place it in an underground tunnel which is destined to be a multi-utility tunnel. They want to be able to put electric power lines and telephone cables in there as well, because those assets like Line 5 are vulnerable to anchor strikes and other potential accidents that can happen in the relatively shallow Straits of Mackinac. So outgoing Governor Rick Snyder signed that law, and he signed three subsequent agreements with Enbridge, to relocate the line into this utility tunnel. And there has been significant litigation since. Indeed, Governor Gretchen Whitmer and Attorney General Dana Nessel both campaigned on a platform to close down Line 5 altogether. And their preference is to shut it down altogether. So right now, Enbridge is in the uncomfortable position of having a governor who disagrees with the law of the state she happens to lead and who has unsuccessfully sued to shut down the pipeline. And when that didn't work, when the lawsuit challenging the state law failed, then in November of 2020, Governor and the Attorney General are attempting to revoke the 1953 easement that placed the pipeline in its current location on the Straits of Mackinac, and they're trying to shut it down. And so that's where we are in terms of process. Enbridge has sought to remove that lawsuit to federal court, saying that the state no longer has sole jurisdiction over the location of the pipeline, because since the issuance of the 1953 easement, Congress has passed laws related to bottomlands, such as the Straits of Mackinac, and also because Line 5 is an instrument of interstate commerce, that the primacy of the federal government, to put it in layman's terms and not particular legal terms, displaces Michigan's preference to revoke the easement and that this issue must be adjudicated in federal court, not state court. And so that case is now pending before the Western District Court of Michigan. Thanks for that overview. That's really helpful. And as you mentioned, this pipeline is is interesting and unique and challenging because it crosses through the U.S. and back into Canada. So Issues around Line 5 are bilateral issues, and it's come up as a sticking point between the U.S. and Canada. I wonder if you can unpack some of the complexities for the Biden administration in dealing with, you know, the objections of a Democratic governor from a state that's very important to the White House, but also balancing those concerns against a key energy and trade partner that has real energy security concerns about shutting down the pipeline. How's that process played out? Well, The government of Canada has actually gotten very involved in the case before the Western District Court of Michigan. Indeed, just on the 21st of June, they filed a letter rebutting an assertion made by the Attorney General that there were no talks going on pursuant to the 1977 treaty between the U.S. and Canada related to such international commerce disputes. 
So that is, you know, something that we are seeing a, an extremely muscular presence from the government of Canada saying, with all due respect, Judge Neff, please hold off on making any decisions because this is actually being discussed at a government to government level and we may be able to resolve it. And that may prove to be the case. So I think there's still a possibility that is important as, you know, Michigan and, and Governor Whitmer may be, you know, to the, the Democratic national strategy. There is this small sticking point of the fact that there is a law on the books in Michigan that Enbridge is following and the other agencies of the Michigan government are following. They've accepted the permit applications They're processing the permit applications and permits have been issued. So, you know, that process is far from complete. But interestingly enough, the 1953 easement that Governor Whitmer wants to rip up also obligates the state of Michigan to not unreasonably withhold approvals related to the pipeline. So the state's legislation extends and creates a new easement in and around the tunnel. Now, if the tunnel project fails because for some reason it can't get be permitted, then I think we have a more substantive question about whether or not, you know, there's an issue related to line five, you know, operating in its current easement. But as important as Michigan is, you know, providing the Upper Peninsula with its primary source of propane in a state that is the heaviest dependent on propane is something that's just doesn't get waved away just because it's not a current political preference. So I think what we're seeing here is is that although there's an incredible groundswell of political interest in the pipeline, that there are certainly incredibly vocal positions being articulated, you know, related to climate change, related to continued use of, of fossil fuels, there are these immovable things, these laws and treaties and things that are relevant that are, are being grappled with. And I think sometimes the folks who are in opposition think that everything is as easy as revoking a presidential permit as the president was able to do with Keystone XL and that President Trump had done before then and Obama had <laughs> denied before then. So that's one of the things that makes this a lot more complex. And it'll be really hard to get a plane in and out of Detroit without Line 5. So there are significant repercussions within Michigan as well as downstream. Well, let's change gears a little bit now and talk about another controversial pipeline, which is the Line 3 replacement project. Again, this is a pipeline that's been subject to, to litigation. In Minnesota, there was just a court ruling that upheld permits for the project. That project is well underway, and it's actually scheduled to be finished by the end of this year, I believe. So can you just talk a little bit about the significance of this pipeline and let us know what have been the objections from environmental groups and from Native American groups to the sure. pipeline? Well, line three replacement, L3R, is, is exactly that. It's a replacement of an existing pipeline, a lot like line five. And what um, I have noticed is that the coverage of the pipeline's opponents and the pipeline's opponents themselves never actually mentioned the 2016 consent decree signed with the Obama administration in July of 2016, which addressed the resolution of Enbridge's leaks on line six and six A, and are, which are also part of the Lakehead system of which both pipelines are part. And in that consent decree, the U.S. government accepted Enbridge's offer to replace Line 3, uh, given its age and its integrity challenges, assuming it could be permitted in the state of Minnesota. Line 3 was 
supposed to, under the consent decree, have that permitting process completed by the end of 2017. It took a bit longer because the pipeline was actually supposed to be in service by the end of 2017. Because it was not in service, Enbridge is also obligated to do an enormous amount of integrity management physically outside the pipe and inside the pipe, including digs, which require them to go out onto people's property and visually inspect the pipeline, you know, to excavate. That's what an integrity dig is and assess, you know, the integrity of the pipeline. So that is non-trivial in terms of work. It is disruptive to the local landowners and it is expensive. In addition, Line three in its current right-of-way has a problem with the Leech Lake Band not wanting to re-extend the easements and the leases for the pipeline. And it is a matter of record that those Native American groups did not want the replacement of line three in place, that they wanted it relocated. So what happened there is that Enbridge took a project called Sandpiper which was going to also run from the same Bakken area and drop down on a more southerly route along an existing pipeline and then cross back the state back to the Great Lakes where it's, you know, it continues on. And in that case, the there's two Native American groups whose reservations are not crossed by the pipeline. The pipeline goes between them and not particularly close. But they object to the relocation of the pipeline and they object to the existence of the pipeline in what they believe is, you know, areas that are precious to them. And environmental groups oppose the continuation of an asset that, you know, is a delivery system for fossil fuels. So they brought significant challenges during the permitting process, contending that Enbridge had failed to defend the need for the pipeline. They had no use for the consent decree claiming that the pipeline was safe. And when the pipeline was first approved, the replacement project was first approved in 2018 by the Public Service Commission. It was then reapproved after an incremental environmental review. The commission there was very concerned about the idea that if they left the existing pipeline in place too long, it would actually, there would be a problem. It would spill and it would create a much bigger problem than having a new pipeline. So, the state of Minnesota, I think overall, the policymakers looked at it and said, you know, we do have businesses that are dependent on this pipeline. It is needed. The argument was whether or not it should be, you know, in their eyes, you know, this was a replacement project. Line three has been running at less than its full capacity and the replacement line would restore that capacity. And so that is something else that a lot of parties objected to, that they viewed it as an increase in delivery as opposed to recovery of delivery. And Enbridge, I think, has been very diligent in slogging through that state permitting process and has addressed those issues. And I think that the proof of that effort is in the pudding with the permit, the certificate of need and the root permit being upheld. They have two more cases outstanding. They have a water permit challenge, which probably won't go very well, given that it probably would have been a better case for the challengers if the certificate of need had failed. And then the Corps of Engineers 404 permit is also in litigation before the D.C. District Court. But the preliminary injunction request there failed. So that doesn't look particularly good for the opponents either. And the the Biden administration continues to support that permit. I think the important takeaway in that context is just because the Trump administration issued a permit doesn't mean that it necessarily wouldn't pass judicial review. 
or is not worth the Corps of Engineers backing. As we move through the Trump administration, the risk of permits being overturned became palpable, both in oil and gas. And what we have observed is the project sponsors have generally, but not always, really stepped up to push for a better review so that the permit would survive judicial challenge. Christy, you've already mentioned some of the complexities between federal versus state roles and pipeline regulation, pipeline approval and permitting. But if you take a step back, when you look at the Biden administration's approach to pipeline issues, why do you think that it's decided to intervene in some of these cases and in others to step back a little bit and let the court system play out uh, and not to intervene more directly? Are you seeing a common theme that runs throughout how the government is treating, federal government is treating all these different cases? Well, I think what we're starting to see is an appreciation for the challenge that the administration has in balancing a lot of different and competing issues. This isn't solely about the environment. When we look at energy issues, it's very easy to interpret them almost exclusively through this energy slash carbon slash emissions lens. And things are more difficult than that. I mean, one of the great ironies of the Obama administration is that You know, oil and gas production and the conventional energy sector did a lot to keep the economy going after the crash in 2008. And the, you know, a key constituency for the Democratic Party is labor. And when you look at line three and you look at line five, you have two major infrastructure projects. Now you can say, well, but what about KXL? They were going to build that one too. Well, KXL, I I think was, you know, looking at this may have been the sacrificial lamb. There were no jobs at risk with Dakota Access. But interestingly, what you saw with Dakota Access was a little bit like what we saw with Line 3, where the... There certainly were the Standing Rock Sioux and Yankton River Sioux and the the Cheyenne who um, brought the case challenging the Dakota Access permits. But the three tribes in the Bakken that own mineral rights that for the oil that's now moving on Dakota Access weighed in saying, hey, don't stop the pipeline with the Corps of Engineers. And that is in the record that was before the D.C. District Court and the D.C. District Court didn't issue the injunction. So I think when we step back, we, you know, what we're looking at is we're looking at the challenge of balancing competing interests, all of which have significant import for the administration. Labor, protecting water quality, you know, is, is a pipeline that's in a concrete tunnel safer than one that's laying on the bottom of a lake bed? You know, draw your own conclusions. You know, looking at a commitment that the U.S. government signed in a consent decree or in a treaty. You know, these are things that I think, you know, the rule of law is something that Democrats identified as something that was important, that wasn't necessarily always well observed by the prior administration. And so it's incumbent on this administration, too, that if they believe they have a legal, the correct legal premise to move forward with something, for example, like with the pause on oil and gas leasing, then they have done that where they believe that it's better to let the court decide whether or not a permit is appropriate, then they have done that. And so I think that that's what we're starting to see is, you know, as energy folks are looking at more how the greater balance of competing political interests are playing out in in a very, very important sector. Yeah, I think that's great context. I'm curious to get your thoughts, too, on this phenomenon of, of pipeline projects just becoming much more controversial and attracting a lot more attention, including from environmental groups. Obviously, I think Keystone XL attracted a massive amount of media attention, and it almost became a, a litmus test for a lot of different groups. But I wonder if you think that the greater attention to oil pipelines in particular is because you know, campaigners are getting more sophisticated. They realize that there are new legal avenues and challenges that are available to them. 
are people paying more attention to pipelines, environmental groups and others, because they think that stopping midstream development is, is easier in some ways than blocking the upstream? And well, how do you see these environmental groups kind of pivoting and, and, and changing their tactics maybe based on what's happened in the last six months? Choking throughput is one way to manage the objective of keeping it in the ground. And so it is very difficult to um, go out and litigate every lease, every wellhead at the production level. And what we do in the U.S. is not going to change behavior in Canada. So how do you get at it? Well, the pipeline is certainly one way to do that. Clearview is that, you know, and it started back in 2012, really getting, as you mentioned, incrementally more sophisticated with a challenge to a relatively small pipeline sponsored by Energy. It was called the Mark One, in uh, going between Pennsylvania and New York, and that happened to be a FERC regulated pipeline. But so yes, so the focus has been on getting to attacking the the mechanism of throughput, and sometimes it's it's successful. Now, when is it successful? When is it not successful? I will tell you that the environmental movement has. I think in many ways become orders of magnitude more sophisticated, and even among them, there you know some some groups are are better than others in bringing lawsuits. You know, a thousand postcards don't stop a project. Uh, people having protests stop a project. Finding that a federal agency failed to execute properly its Endangered Species Act review will stop a project. And so the environmental groups, to their credit have become significantly more sophisticated. They are able to raise money. That's part of the need to have visibility. That's part of the function of the protests. To hire lawyers, to hire experts, they can challenge on an evidentiary basis what a project sponsor has brought before the a particular federal agency or a particular state agency. Now, some of them have been excellent. Some of them have been very good. Some of them have been less so. And I think that's why more often than not, the federal permit gets upheld. But we certainly saw on the natural gas side, when the environmental groups failed to meaningfully challenge the FERC certificate, they wound up being very successful challenging sister agency permits, such as the Forest Service's approval of Mountain Valley Pipeline and Atlantic Coast Pipeline through federal forests, the Fish and Wildlife Service's review of both those projects. They successfully challenged the Corps of Engineers' review of the Keystone XL project and the Corps' review of Dakota Access. Now, Dakota Access managed to be completed and go into service. But the Corps of Engineers is is redoing that permit again for the third time. So, you know, they are, you know, the project opponents are becoming much more sophisticated. That said, you're not going to win canceling it in the New York Times coverage. You know, you're going to have to bring an actual legal and defensible case to get it done. And so they're working both tracks. Yeah. And a lot of the arguments really center on safety. So I'd love to get your thoughts on the argument that if pipelines are shut down or if they're never built, that more of this crude will just be shipped by other means, uh, mostly by rail or truck. You know, a big problem in Western Canada and the oil patch has been you know, lack of evacuation routes and, and pipeline routes available. And of course, shipment by rail is more expensive. Some people would argue it's it's less safe or the safety outcomes are worse. Um, what do you think of that argument? Well, I think we're seeing a lot of it. You know, Lac Magantic was certainly a non-trivial accident and a horrible outcome. And I think put the spotlight on, you know, the risks of commodity cycle 
move very quickly and product wants to move, it'll find a way to go. So I think that it can get shipped by rail or by truck. It is more expensive. It has its own set of risks. In theory, a new pipeline built, constructed to modern standards should be much better than a pipeline originally permitted back in 1953, for example, across the Straits of Mackinac. Or, you know, going through the countryside in in Minnesota. So I think that, you know, that's real and that's relevant. And I think it has been an important part of why pipelines are still eligible to get permits, even though they're highly contested. Now, one of the things that I think is difficult and more challenging, I think, for project sponsors is as we've moved into this administration, you know, frankly, in a mere six months, you're seeing, I think, a real shift in expectation for incremental growth. What you're seeing is, you know, certainly a lot of tension in terms of what the demand outlook looks like for crude and refined products. I'm not here to call peak oil. That's somebody else's job. But I think what we're seeing is we're seeing certainly, you know, it's going to be a harder sell to investors to talk about growth projects. And I think a lot of the investment we're going to see is going to be on projects like that do replace existing assets in order to keep serving the markets we need served and in order to do that safely. So that's where we're expecting to see more investment in the in the midstream sector is probably in replacement and some incremental additions, making the existing system more robust versus very significant greenfield expansions. Curious to get your thoughts about how all these pipeline issues have potentially changed the approach to regulatory review for oil pipelines. So there have been a lot of court cases, there have been a lot of appeals. Do you think this is going to lead to any concrete changes in the way that various federal agencies approach the issues, like the Army Corps of Engineers, the Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management. Have you learned anything new about the strengths and weaknesses of the regulatory review process? Any changes that you foresee? Actually, interestingly, I, I, I have something that I think is probably not necessarily on folks' radar screens. And, you know, we expect, you know, when a, an administration changes, particularly when it changes from one party to another, that you have a difference in mindset at a federal agency. You know, certainly the Trump administration was much more of the, you know, how can we get to yes and how fast, a big focus on streamlining, that sort of thing. And those permits weren't always upheld. Under the Obama administration, there was no shortage of litigation, but the federal agencies tended to come out on top. So a more robust process up front can be more helpful to a project sponsor, actually, than one that's too quick if it doesn't dot all the I's and cross all the T's. I think what we're seeing, although, you know, what I'm seeing in the projects that continue to move forward is an aggressive shift towards the sponsor carrying a bit more water in terms of getting a good regulatory outcome. Now, some folks don't like that idea. When we were looking at the revisions to the National Environmental Policy Act guidance that was finalized last summer, there was significant opposition to giving the project sponsor more control over the development of the documentation, the interaction with the contractor that prepares it, all that sort of stuff. But I think, you know, if you look at it, I see logic in the idea is if this is the guy whose capital is being put at risk, then it is incumbent on him as much as the federal regulator or the state regulator to do a good job. And if there's a situation where, you know, they know they're going to be challenged in court because they're already seeing the adverse comments come in during the review process, then I think those sponsors that 
do their best to have good answers to those challenges in the regulatory review process are the ones whose permits survive and get issued, well, get issued and then survive review. And so it may take longer on the front end. And I think we're going to see that, you know, to the extent that permits move more quickly under the Trump administration, I expect to see them take longer under the Biden administration. But at the end of the day, the permits that do get issued may be more robust and more resilient under judicial review than they would be if they were strictly on time. And so we're looking at the cost and the effort to be before the company gets in the field and starts building versus the risk of being told to lay down their shovels once they're already out there. Yeah, well, let's talk about one other issue from the project sponsor's perspective, which is public engagement and social license to operate. So not the legal and regulatory issues, but really how they engage with the public and, and different interest groups uh, before pipelines are built. Um, do you think companies like Enbridge and, and TC Energy from We Trans Canada, what have they learned about what you need to do in order to get a pipeline permitted, but also to ensure buy-in and avoid risks down the line from uh, public criticism of pipeline projects? Well, I don't look a lot at the PR side, um, but I do think that, you know, based on my vantage point and the arguments and briefs I've read in these legal challenges, there are parties that even if these pipeline companies danced on the head of a pin, there is nothing that they could do to get the people opposed to the project to, to get to say yes. I, I think that's just where we are in terms of the climate change question. It is very, very binary. It has become increasingly strident on both sides. And I think it's very difficult. I don't think that to a certain extent, there's a lot that any fossil company that emits carbon, you know, is, is going to be able to get people on board in a broad stakeholder process. What I do think we have is I think we do still have some environmental groups who are more moderate, who do believe that there is value in incremental improvement. And those folks, the Environmental Defense Fund leaps to mind, have been active in you know, helping the gas industry become more focused on fugitive emissions, do more about policing their own emissions and that sort of thing. And I think that that's, you know, helpful. But I think as we look at the way climate change is becoming so divisive a social issue, you know, the fact that, you know, we've got members of US, the U.S. Senate saying, I will not even contemplate voting for a infrastructure package if it doesn't include a, a strong climate component. There's not a lot a, a company, any company in the energy sector can do about that. That is becoming something that's beyond their control. So I think, you know, trying to get buy-in locally, it's always hard. The more sophisticated the um, environmental opposition is, the more effective they are and visible in terms of protests and social interest. You know, social media has done a lot to give them, you know, great platform then I think it's going to remain contentious. And I think that, you know, the strategy is likely to be, as I mentioned before, is that if you're going to go in and try and get the permit, get the most legally defensible permit you can by addressing as many issues as you possibly can, you know, up front. Well, we are just about out of time, but maybe as a last question, I'll ask you, aside from these very high profile cases that we've talked about, are there any other below the radar pipeline issues that we should be watching? You know, one of the areas I think we're going to be watching is activity over at the Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration, FIMSA. It's part of the Department of Transportation. 
What they do there is uh, they do the integrity and safety standards. That's not something that Department of Energy or the Federal Energy Commission, Regulatory Commission does. FEMSA handles not only pipelines, but also rail cars, trucking, all that, those modes of transportation for hazardous and materials. And I think that with the last administration not getting through the to-do list Congress made for it in 2016, and the new list that Congress crafted for it in 2020 with the reauthorization of that agency, we're going to see a lot of attention to integrity management, support for investing in making sure existing pipelines are in excellent operating condition and are safe. There's certainly been a call from some opponents to Secretary Pete Buttigieg to just start closing stuff down. But again, I believe that the rule of law is strong with this administration. So I don't think we're going to see sort of unexpected moves. But I do expect to see incrementally, you know, stricter regulation that increases costs. And as we look, you know, and step back again and look at what, you know, the industries are facing, as you know, safety standards become more robust, as permitting becomes more difficult, as operations require more costs, then that adds to the costs of the conventional energy sector and provides an opportunity for uh, lower emitting energy resources to try and come in and, and undercut that. So I think we're going to be watching that, that cycle at play here over the next couple of years. Christy, thanks so much for spending time with us today. I, I really don't know anyone else who has this level of mastery of the details of these individual pipelines, but can also lay the groundwork and bring it all together and connect the dots so well. So we're really, really grateful for your insights. Thanks. Thanks to Christy for joining us today. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 on our website, CSIS.org, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. As always, thanks for listening.